Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Please be advised that this podcast contains descriptions of graphic violence. I'm not joking. I'm not kidding around. Serious descriptions of seriously graphic violence. So if you don't like that, and if you have children around or anybody who shouldn't hear that, please turn off now. Final warning now. Okay. If anyone ever invited you to Belangelo State Forest, I mean, there's no way in the world I'd ever go there. It sounds like hell, doesn't it? Oh, Michelle, I've taken so many people there. Have you? <laughs> Maybe I need to take you there. Yes, it's, it's, I think it's interesting to go there. I go to a lot of crime scenes. I need to see the journey of the victims. And so going there, you realise how desolate it is because you not only turn off the, the main freeway, but it's 7Ks then into the forest. And it's hard, up and down, dirt, rocks. It's it's quite terrifying. And if this was happening in the evening or at night, um, it is literally pitch black. I've been out there at midnight because this is what I do. Yeah. And um, there's not a sound. It's full stars. You know, light pollution isn't there because it's just so desolate. And these victims are taken 
what looks like heaven, but it's it's actually hell. Serial killer expert Amanda Howard is back on Australian True Crime to run us through a theory that may sound bonkers at first, but I promise you I've cross-referenced it with the people who should disagree with her the most, and they just don't. They all agree that the case against Australia's most infamous serial killer, Ivan Milat, is pretty shaky. The only difference is that Amanda is pen pals with Ivan and still talks to him about his case on a regular basis. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Amanda is now the co-host of her own podcast. It's called Monsters Who Murder and there's a link in the notes to this podcast. She hosts it with Robert McKnight and it's a bit controversial because although no one can argue with Amanda's knowledge on the subject, which is encyclopedic, people do tend to get a bit creeped out by her close relationships with serial killers. You see, she's usually writing to over a hundred of them at any one time and quite often she's talking regularly to a few of them over the phone too. She says it's all in the name of research, and I think her podcast is pretty great. That's where I first heard this idea that the case against Ivan isn't quite as watertight as I always assumed it was. Before we go on, though, because we'll be talking so much about Ivan in this episode, I think we should start by remembering his seven known victims and their families. Joanne Walters, 22, and Carolyn Clark, 21, were both from England, but met in Sydney, where they became friends and decided to travel on together. They left their hostel in April 1992, telling their families they were heading to Mildura to make some money picking fruit. Joanne was particularly reliable when it came to keeping in touch with her parents. So when they hadn't heard from her in a month, they flew to Australia to try and find her. Just four months later, her remains were found in Belangelo State Forest off the Hume Highway in New South Wales by cross-country runners. Carolyn's were found by police the following day. Dr Peter Bradhurst, the forensic pathologist who carried out the autopsies, reported that Joanne had died in a frenzied stabbing attack having sustained up to 20 wounds in the back and 10 in the chest. Some of the back wounds appeared to be deliberately intended to sever the spine, rendering her paralysed. She had no defensive wounds to the hands and upper arms, which was unusual in such an attack. Carolyn had been blindfolded with her arms raised above her head. She'd been shot 10 times in the head and stabbed once. Dr Bradhurst proposed a theory that Carolyn may have been used for target practice. He also reported that he felt two killers had been involved in the crime, given that two different methods had been used. And he's not the only person who's put that theory forward, not by a long shot. Before returning to England, Joanne's distraught parents fronted the Australian media in a plea for information about the killer. A 
full year later, but only 600 metres away, the skeletal remains of Melbourne couple Deborah Everest and James Gibson were found by local man Bruce Pryor, who'd taken it upon himself to search the area for more victims in his spare time. They'd departed Melbourne four years earlier, planning a low-key, long weekend away for Confest, the music festival. Deborah's mother, Pat, had strongly encouraged her to go. The two of them had been nursing Deborah's father through his terminal illness, and Pat felt Deborah deserved a carefree weekend away with her boyfriend. Go on, she told Deb. The break will do you good. Well, all right, Deb had replied, but I'll be back in three days to clean your outside windows. But Deb didn't return in three days. And when she hadn't returned in four, both she and James were reported missing. Deborah's father died not long after she disappeared, leaving Pat to wait alone for news. It was a story she told a reporter 16 years later at an afternoon tea for the parents of victims at Bowral Police Station. Autopsies revealed that James had suffered the same paralysing stab wounds to his spine as Joanne Walters. Less than a month after Deborah and James were found in November of 1993, police scouring the dense scrub of Belangelo found a skull and some women's clothing. Two years earlier, Erwin Schmidl had flown into Melbourne Airport expecting to be met by her adventurous daughter Simone. Simone, who'd been travelling solo around Australia, never made it. Having told her Sydney friends she'd hitchhiked down to meet her mother, she disappeared somewhere on the Hume Highway around the 20th of January 1991. Irwin reported Simone missing within two days of her arrival and stayed in Australia for six weeks before returning heartbroken to Germany. She learned the terrible news of the identification of Simone's remains on her radio. The police had not been able to contact her before the media got hold of the story. The clothes found with Simone, however, were not hers. They were identified as belonging to another missing German backpacker, Anya Habschied, who was not believed to have known Simone. Anya had been travelling with her boyfriend, Gabor Neugebauer, and neither had been heard of since Christmas 1991. Gabor had phoned his parents, complaining of the heat in Sydney, which made it hard for him to sleep, and Anya had written to her parents, telling them of their plans to travel to Darwin and then on to Asia through Indonesia. The couple was observed leaving their hostel in King's Cross on Boxing Day 1991 and there is also a baffling sighting of them in a caravan park in Darwin soon after and a report of them missing their flight to Indonesia. The next thing we know for sure is that their families reported them missing and flew to Australia to conduct a search of their own. Gabor's parents and Anya's brother travelled the length and breadth of the Northern Territory, Queensland and New South Wales before returning home exhausted and no doubt more confused than before. Two days after Simone's remains were found, Anya and Gabor's were located close by. Gabor had suffered the telltale injuries to his spine and gunshot wounds to his head. Anya had been decapitated seemingly with one blow. An unused plane ticket was found at the site. 
So again, we see the prevalence of two very different methods of murder. And experts in this field agree that this is very, very rare in a single killer. Even the judge who convicted Ivan Milat of the crimes, Justice David Hunt, said during sentencing, in my view, it is inevitable the prisoner was not alone in that criminal enterprise. So given the ferocity of the crimes we're talking about, the idea that we as a community have been so willing to stop thinking critically about this case is, to say the very least, pretty frustrating, isn't it, Amanda? It's extremely frustrating because regardless of, of Ivan's own guilt, there is very likely that there is another killer out there somewhere, but they don't want us to think about that. Yeah. Uh, and and, and it's sort of we've sort of forgotten about it. I think. I think in the in the excitement of the uh, you know the sensational case, and uh, and then it's seeming to reach its conclusion. We've all just gone. Oh, great. Okay. Well, that's done. We had a big serial killer. They caught him. Um, he's crazy and he's in jail and he's self harming and swallowing things and God knows what else. And that's mm-hmm. the end of the story. And we sort of don't want to know anymore. Well, how long after? Ivan's arrest, did you start talking to him? It was about 1995. So where I'm actually currently sitting in my own house, I can see his house. Wow, really? Yeah, that's how close we live. So it's, I think that's part of the fascination I have in that um, he was a local. I probably, you know, knocked into him at at the shopping centre that's kind of between our homes. God, that's amazing. Yeah, I was going to say that. You mean the house that he was living in, not his house now, (laughs) which is, which, which prison is he in now? He's still in Supermax. So he's not going far as far as I'm aware, though. You never know because um, I've been talking to another Sitsuo killer who was in Supermax and then he went into Gen Pop in Goulburn and now he's been moved to a totally different prison. So mm. it's not out of the realms of possibility. Okay. So his, the, the home that he was living in that was eventually raided by police where they found, um, famously found trophies in inverted commas from the, some of the victims is the house that you can see now. Yes, that's right, in, wow. in Eagle Bar, yeah. Wow, okay. So uh, 95, so that's, what, roughly five years after his arrest? No, no he, he he was arrested in, I think it's May 1994. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, so it was, it, it was very soon after. So, And I've spoken to him on and off over the years. There's been a couple of times I've taken breaks from writing to serial killers. It does get to you. Mm-hmm. So I, I did break a couple of times, but um, it's still going now. So, And my conversations I have with him is a lot to do with the evidence because it doesn't make sense. There's a missing link mm-hmm. that I'm trying to put together. Yeah, well, and it's just, it's not there. There's a few missing links. So I heard uh, on your podcast about, about this case, the first one that you raised was you don't seem to be able to find the, the the moment or the link or the way that police decided to re- to to um, arrest Ivan. Yeah, I mean, 
we often have cases where they, they find the DNA, they find um, something at the scene, someone saw them, but we have we have no witness evidence, we have no DNA evidence, and we have um, no crime scene evidence that says Ivan Malat was the killer. Now, a lot of people go, well, hang on a sec, how about Paul Onions? Now, Paul Onions was the British backpacker who phoned in uh – to one of the the police lines, but his 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 initial testimony was lost in the big stack of, of tips that came in. But he was uh, he, he said that he was picked up by a man. He gave a description that later was judged to be an exact description of Ivan with the moustache. We'll get to the moustache shortly. This is how Paul Onions described his experience to Australian 60 Minutes in 1996. As Malat drove toward his killing ground. Paul began to sense him getting edgy. He became a bit anti-racial to the, you know, the immigrants who were living in Australia. He found them, you know, like quite offensive, really. You go out west and you don't know if you're in Vietnam or bloody China. I was so happy to get get the the ride, and then for all of a sudden, I thought, oh no, first go, I've got the I've got the nutter. <laughs> that was a really cool reaction. I don't care where you come from. It's just not bloody right. An hour and a half south of Sydney are the Southern Highlands, nice tidy townships and grand weekenders. And just a few minutes off the highway, up a dirt road, is the Belanglo State Forest. As I approached the turn-off to this road, Paul Onions really began to get the jitters. And then there... For some reason, we just started to slow down a bit and just kept looking in his mirror. Mm. And, I was, and if you can drive yourself, you find it a bit odd. And then I just said, I said, what's the problem, though? And he says, oh... No, we'll lose the uh, radio signal, mate, when we get this car out of Sydney. I'm going to pull over up the road and I'm going to get some cassettes from uh, underneath the seat so we can listen to some music, eh? That, that was his excuse, really, to get some cassettes from under the seat to put it put some music on. Well, it just seemed odd because there's actually cassettes in between us. Once the vehicle was pulled over and he got out to search under the seat, I thought, you know, there's two sides to your brain. There's the calm side saying, oh, you should be happy this guy's giving you a lift, what you're worried about. Then there's the other side saying, hold on, there's something, something that doesn't feel right there. So the initial reaction to me then was, well, I'll just stretch my legs and see what, see what, it, see how it provokes him. Why are you getting out of the car? After all, it's a sunny day and there are yeah, quite a few it. cars that's around. It. I had a look around. I thought, oh, well, what's the problem? Surely not here, like, not in this situation. So I thought, I'll just get back in and see what happens. So I got back in the vehicle and just put my seatbelt on. He watched me do his. He got back in. So I thought, oh, no problem. No problem at all. And the next minute, he jumps straight back out and says, I'll just have to look under the seat one more time. And I thought, this is it. I'll have one of those cassettes, huh? So, he just bent over, looked under the seat and just pulled out the revolver. And obviously, all the questions was answered in one, one movement. You know what this is? Easy, bro. What's wrong, mate? Look, please, just calm down, mate. And then the next minute, he just... Pull this rope from under the seat. And when I seen the rope, that just scared me more than the gun. But as soon as I seen the rope, I thought, oh, that's going to be a... You know, it's going to take a bit of time. He's going to do whatever he wants. 
is a robbery, that's what it is. I just thought I'm out of here, like. I was just, you know, obviously panicking and just, just running off away from the vehicle. I heard him shout, stop else, I'll shoot, stop else, I'll shoot. And then I just heard the gun go off. And that was like, it was like a massive jolt to your system, like you knew it was surreal then, like, you know, oh, God, really panicking then. I was just, I was just really panicking then to try and stop some vehicles. And they obviously could see what was happening. And they were just stopping, slowing down, and just driving straight off. I said, oh, now I'm just going to stop. It's just like a passing of time. I, just, I was just about to give up and say, oh, yeah, he's won, he's won. I better go back. And I thought, if I go back there, that you know, it just seemed that was the end if I go back there. And that sort of when I made my mind up what I was going to do. I thought the next vehicle that comes over the, the bear of the hill, I'm just going to stop it no matter what. What, jump in front of it? Yeah, it just seemed... I'd rather stop a car, get killed, than go back to that vehicle and face the end that way. If I hadn't stopped, yeah, he would have joined the others in the forest. Or you'd have run him over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was Mrs Joanne so Berry who rescued Paul. Panic. He was shaking. Ab absolute petrified. I think, I think he just about screamed, help me, he's got a gun. And that, that was very clear. Joanne turned around and drove back to the nearest police station. Barrel Police Station. And we, uh, I went in with Paul. We spoke to a young female constable in there. and In their panic, no one got the number plate, but Paul told his story to the local policewoman on duty. Trouble is, that's where the information stayed, buried in the bowels of the police station. Remember that back in 1990, the location of the attack had no significance. It would be two years before the first bodies were found there. And Ivan actually goes into a great lot of detail saying that apparently his first witness statement was nothing like what he looks like. And it's just that sort of police sort of put this photo under his, his nose and said, it's him, it's him, it's him. So, I mean, conspiracy theories maybe, but according to Ivan, the, the two witness descriptions were very, very different. And, of course, he says that it wasn't him anyway. And, of course, the moustache. Uh, Paul Onions talks about the Merv Hughes-style moustache. Merv Hughes being a massive cricketer, certainly at the time, very, very famous, still quite famous to a lot of people of a certain age in Australia and England, but at the time a very famous guy. And so that's how Paul Onions described him in his statement. And... Um, Ivan says, well, his moustache changed a lot over the years and it wasn't actually in the Merv Hughes style at the time. 
And and there's photos of that to, to show that he didn't have it. So, I mean, it's it's a very tenuous case to, to try and link this together. And um, it's actually quite surprising. I, I was speaking to Merv Hughes one time on Studio <laughs> 10 about it because, I mean, when you get me in a room with the Merv Hughes moustache, I had to ask the question. He goes, well, it, it got me the job on Fat Pizza. I, I've got <gasps> to play Ivan Milat on, on the show. Did he? Um, so it was a bit of a surreal moment I had to ask. I'm so glad you did because I always wonder, I wonder what Murph Hughes makes of this. I'm so glad you got to ask him. Yeah, yeah, he's like, it was huge, he says, but it got me a job. <laughs> How bizarre. Wow. So now the other, to, the, to your other point about there being no physical evidence to link Ivan to the crimes, of course police say that they did find uh, evidence in, in the form of gun shells and um, that they can link the weapons used two weapons owned by Ivan? Well, the thing is, is that they say that they can link gun parts to Ivan and to to the case, except the vital part that would do the striations on the casings Mm. was never found. Right. So basically they say it was a twenty-two Ruger and we found 22 Ruger parts in his house. Um, The fact that... Um, is one of the most popular rifles in, in, in the country and probably the world. I mean, that's like saying he used a fork. It, it really, it was very much just a, a, a wide-reaching statement and they just assumed that the parts that were in his house were what were used in these cases. However, Ivan actually goes even further into this and said that they swept his house for days and days and days and days and days and then after they'd finished, a young cop walks into his house and goes, oh, hang on a sec, there's a, there's a casing there on, on his bedroom floor and photographs it and picks it up that it had been missed in all these sweeps and what do you know, that one casing matched one of the um, cases of one of the victims being killed. Right. So, you know, I'm... Um, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, again... Yeah, this wasn't found in various sweeps, it was found afterwards. Okay. Uh, also, the the car, the car uh, that Ivan owned at the time, was said to to be the car that was identified by Paul Onions, was it? Yes. Yes. And um and the woman who picked him up. Yes. Mhm. And he was able to identify the car because it had a great big um, wheel cover thing on the back, because it's a big four wheel drive. Yep. Again, um, there was evidence to show that Ivan didn't have a car like that at the time. I mean, so, it, it seemed to be Paul Onions, but also it seemed from, again, from reading the book by Clive Small, who was the lead investigator on the on the case, that it was Ivan's brother who gave the most damning uh, clues in the lead up to Ivan's arrest. Is that is that how it seemed to you? Ivan's yeah, well, brother, Alex? Well, I don't know. There's, there's, a, there's several brothers that sort of seem to have given stories. Now, a bit of an exclusive here for you. Thank you. Um, Alex actually had gone to the police multiple times and claimed to have seen the two British backpackers after they were officially last seen. So um, he claims that he saw them in a different car, that um, they were concerned and he was worried about them. So it makes you wonder what was going on there that what? maybe him talking about this sort of stuff made them look at the family maybe? Yeah, what it's is It's very, you know, lots of question marks here. But um, 
Yes, I have it from a really good source that actually Alex went to the police multiple times with his fanciful stories that they sort of dismissed, but at the same time it, it, it sort of raised a few alarm bells. Well, and it was Alex who actually handed in the first piece of physical evidence, which was the famous T-shirt. Um, was it the T-shirt or the photograph of the T-shirt that was had belonged to, was identified as belonging to one of the backpackers? Yeah, I think it was the photo with um with Ivan's girlfriend wearing it. So it yeah. was the, the green and white striped one. And Alex gave that to police. So he actually sort of, well, not sort of, he definitely gave police the first solid link between the backpackers and Ivan. Mm-hmm. What so, do you, what but, do you, well, I mean, it's a, it's a T-shirt by a very famous brand. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, it... it, it I don't believe in coincidences, but sometimes they, they they can happen. But it just it just sort of shows how sort of weak all of these links are. That that they arrested someone because they saw a photo of someone in a similar t-shirt. That they didn't even know if the backpacker had with them at the time. You know, you often dump stuff when you have to go on on longer trips along the highways and things like that. You know, it's. Yeah, but it's a bit of a stretch to think that then Alex was able to go and that Alex had an inventory of the T-shirts that the backpackers had and then he was able to go and find a photograph of Ivan's girlfriend wearing a similar T-shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. But also, I agree with you there. But what is Alex's story? Like what do you what do you make of it? Does, does Ivan talk about his brothers and, and Alex in particular? Does he feel as though Alex put him in? No, no, he talks he, he talks about Bill more than anyone um, okay. because he's he's the one who turns up on on TV all the time. He has um horrible names for him. So Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Right. Uh, because, well, he's he's the only one in the family who isn't standing solid with Ivan. So he's the one who says, and I think Ivan did this case and I think Ivan was there and I think Ivan murdered this person and that person. And so um, he's he hates him with a passion. He's, he's actually changed his name now, but he keeps turning up on TV anyway. Does he really? Mm-hmm. I think the most recent one he claimed that um, – Ivan shot, I think, a taxi driver or something. So it gets Ivan rolled up. He really starts going on when when all of this goes down. Here is some audio from that recent TV appearance by Ivan's brother, Bill, who now calls himself Boris Malat. It's on the Sunday night program on Channel 7. When Ivan was just 17, the skinny teenager pointed a gun at a taxi driver's head. And he said, yeah, he said, I just dug a a gun in a bloke's thing and he took the money there, he robbed the money there, he got the money there and that was it. Soon as the gun got in the hands of that fool, life changed. Milat was 17, armed and dangerous. He'd already robbed one taxi driver and was planning to rob another. It's Boris Milat on Channel 7 there and is it just me or were you expecting him to have changed the Malat part of his name. Anyway, after the break, we'll hear more about the family Malat. Coming up on Australian True Crime, I'll put Amanda on the spot and ask who she thinks is the other killer. But first, let's find out why so many people called those police tip-off lines and suggested that they have a look at the Malats in the early 90s. What can you tell us about the Malat family before before this case? Because certainly there is an understanding that they were a pretty creepy family and that, that, that a lot of tips came in. That's, that's the story in the book. The story is that um, a lot of people rang up and said, have you looked at the Malats? They're a pretty creepy family. Well, I mean, they're a very large family and and they were still pretty close. I mean, they're, you know, half Serbian and they would have big parties and and there would be alcohol, though Ivan doesn't drink himself, you know, and they would get out the big guns literally and take photos and we've seen all, all those photos. And, um, and they would have a lot of time together. They would go hunting. Um, there was almost a pack mentality with, with some of the boys. So there was, you know, car thefts earlier. There was, you know, some assaults on girls. There's actually some um, some history that I've been digging through that there was some assault on some of the boys as well um, because they were a bit wild and, and they were expected to, if you weren't going to do well at school, that you actually have to be home and working hard for, for their father who worked them from, from you know, daybreak to 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 dusk and they would just do this over and over every single day and and so they would get into trouble because that they, they didn't have um any sort of um oh what's the word um excitement so so they would go and create their own because they would be working so hard from such a young age and i guess money was tight so making your own oh, fun sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, mum was often sick, so, um, you know, and there was lots of babies coming all the time. So it was about everyone pitching in and doing everything that they could. And so, you know, some of the boys ran wild and would get into trouble and Ivan ended up in Boys Town for a while and all of this sort of stuff. And one of the earliest 
ideas that came out in the investigation uh, when they started sort of looking at profiles, potential profiles of perpetrators was this idea that firstly that there were two people involved in the murders, secondly that it was potentially uh, brothers and thirdly that it was probably an older brother who was very uh, who was the aggressor, the more sort of um, the more interesting, yeah, the more dominant over a younger brother. Um, and that sort of seems to fit that story that you're telling as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about um, when when you look at cases like this, um, people think, oh, yeah, it's, it's quite easy for one man to abduct two people and kill them in two, two different ways. Imagine the logistics of all of that. You have to imagine, you know, a gun in this arm, a, a samurai sword in this arm, two victims who are fighting you, um, regardless of theories of being tied up and everything, when he has had people escape because he hadn't tied them up until they were on the freeway. You know, there's all of this sort of stuff that sort of creates an area where it would be easier if there was two. You know, if he picked up one hitchhiker like Simone, one-on-one is a lot easier. But then when we get down to the way that he killed, where, um, you know, one shot and one stabbed, it's it's really interesting that, that people actually think that one person would do that because, yes, they might have a knife in their back pocket and their, and their rifle, but it's usually a preference, you know, um, killers seem to pick a weapon of choice and kind of stick to it, um, that they actually do learn and they do create a better MO, but you don't sort of swap and change with all of your victims. And when one's been decapitated with, with a single blow, I mean, that takes such great strength and it, it's really tough to do that while you're shooting someone else and everything. And actually Ivan talks about it that, um, in, in trial, they, they claimed that he was just sort of sitting there and watching the second perpetrator and he goes, what, I was having a cup of coffee or, or, or something while this was going on. I mean, it's, some of it seems ridiculous to for them to say there's no possible way that there's a second killer. It, it's, it's, there has to be. But certainly there was sort of a ritualistic style to the way the bodies were found, wasn't there? I mean, they, would, they seemed to have been posed face down. Um, yeah, and they were all covered in, in in just enough branches to sort of hide them from the casual observer. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't about hiding them, but it was just about making sure that they weren't found immediately. And let's face it, um, the Victorian couple were actually there for five years. Mm. So, but yeah, he was. It was about dumping them and degrading them as as best the killer could. And it appeared as though the killer or killers had spent considerable time there at the scene. They had. They didn't seem to have been in a hurry. There were lots of cigarette butts found, and um, you know, to Ivan's sort of joke about what was I doing having a cup of coffee. I mean, it seemed as though the killer didn't hurry and uh, took his time to, to to soak it up. You didn't need to hurry. You're in the middle of nowhere. No one is going to come, and if they do, you're going to see headlights for a quarter of an hour before they get to you. Mm. So, I mean, we we know that Ivan's great-nephew decided to to use that area as his own killing ground 
a decade or so later, I think. Don't ask me timelines. Um, And, you know, he he did exactly the same thing because it's so secluded and no one is going to find you. No one is going to hear you scream. No one's going to hear gunfire. It's, it's, It's a perfect killing ground, sadly. But as you say, there is no physical evidence at the scene and no DNA. Even with all those cigarette butts, they weren't able to get DNA or haven't been yet able to get Ivan's DNA from the scene. Well, Ivan is a non-smoker. Oh. So never, like, um, he actually talks in in a couple of conversations we had that um, his his friends at the RTA actually thought he was strange because they'd go out for, you know, hard drinking nights but when they've been on on the trucks all day Mm. and, um, you know, and they'd all get roaring drunk and everything and and he's a non-drinker and a non-smoker and they thought he was strange because he's this, you know, hard man who loves his guns but um, doesn't drink or smoke. So instantly when we have cigarette butts, you've got to think, well, whose are they? Wow. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we have um, the Tollgate girls who disappeared as well and the person that was seen with them was um, a heavy smoker. Tell us about the Tollgate girls. So um, these were two Sydney nurses, um, Gillian Jamison and Deborah Bulk, and they actually did disappear in 1980 um, from the Tollgate Hotel, which is in Parramatta. Now, um, Ivan has been fingered for this case many, many times over the years, though the coroner's now saying, you know, I don't think it's him. It, he's, he seemed to be a, a pretty easy target for a lot of these sort of cases. Yeah. And um, the, the suspect was seen heavily smoking while he was talking to these girls. Again, it was a guy with a moustache and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and Ivan, I, I remember when the, they were going to take him for questioning and everything, he goes, oh, they have to ask me, do I smoke? He goes, and it's a stupid thing that would, for me to say to them, I've never smoked, so basically it can't be me. Mm. So it's it's really crazy. So, you know, when everyone says, oh, there's cigarette butts in, in Blown Glow Forests, Ivan's a non-smoker, so instantly we have a second person at the scene. Uh, I think Ivan was even mentioned in connection with the Lynette Dawson case, wasn't he, at some point? Oh, he's been connected with so many cases. Um, uh, there's Peter Felcher, I think, who was found um, at Janolan Caves. I think that's a almost a definite. Okay. I'm just reading about the Peter Letcher case now that you mention it. Friday, November 1987, Mr Letcher found himself flat broken in need of a lift to Bathurst from Sydney. Last seen alive, November 13th. Oh, yes, I remember his photo. Uh, hitchhiking and never made it. Around about the same time, Malat was working for the Department of Main Roads in the area. And in 1988, two bushwalkers came across his remains uh, off a forest trail in the Janolan yes. Caves. Yeah. So um, the Janolan Caves area was an area that the Malat family went to a lot. His body was found uh, lying face down in a shallow ditch covered in branches and leaf litter. So, yeah, you're right, absolutely. Mm-hmm in keeping with the style that uh, we saw in Belangelo. And there's a few others. There was um, a woman, I was doing some research on a very different case the other day, and I come across a woman who'd been dumped, covered in branches in another forest. Um, but police don't believe that it's linked, so I don't know why, so I have to do a bit more digging on that case. Okay. Um, but it, it, it sounded far more similar than these people who have just vanished off the face of the earth. And, of course, there was the earlier abduction, well, alleged abduction and sexual assault of the two women who accused Ivan. And then 
when the case came to court, uh, it, it got very strange, didn't it? One of the women then said that she sort of withdrew her accusations in the courtroom, didn't she? This was years before the murders and said that it, it sort of all happened because she was gay and didn't know, her, didn't understand her own sexuality and was confused. And what happened there? Yeah, she sort of said that um, that she had, had complied because it, she thought it would be easier and, and that maybe it wasn't actually a, a forceful assault. And, it, it yeah, it, a lot of these things happen and, and when we look at it with hindsight, we can say, well, had something else had happened then if, if they had decided to pursue the case more than they did, mm. you know, it, it, it might have changed the trajectory of, of the whole history of, of Australian criminal history. But um, she sort of reneged on her story and then, and then Ivan fled to New Zealand. I mean, the thing, the, the trouble though, is that even it, had he been convicted of those sexual assaults, he wouldn't have gone to jail for long, as we know in Australia. Oh, so no. It, <laughs> you know, it probably wouldn't have changed the history of Australian crime. Um, but yeah, it's a very strange case. And in retrospect, they sort of talk about his, he had a, a fantastic lawyer. And even that man himself, his lawyer sort of says, well, it, it wasn't my greatest moment looking back. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of strange spots in this case. It's it's one of the weirdest stories that we have in this country and we've been fed um, a single line of, of what we have to believe and if we start to dig it a little further beyond the surface story, there's so much more that doesn't make sense that um, we're just told, yeah, don't worry about that, that doesn't link up. I mean, um even in court, there was evidence to prove that Ivan Milat wasn't at two of the killings. I think it was the two Germans. Mm. And um, and in in the case, they said, oh, well, just because you weren't there for one doesn't mean that you didn't do the others. It's like, to me, I thought this was a similar fact case that we have seven victims and one killer. Yeah. But to say, well, well you did five, so we'll just add on the other two, it's just beyond ridiculous. It was the anniversary of his father's death and wow. him and his mother had spent uh, a couple of days together out at, at the cemetery mm. and um, and there's proof of that. And this was when some of the victims had disappeared. I'm pretty sure it, it was the German couple. Mm. And, um, yeah, so he wasn't there. And... Mm. They just go, yeah, but it's okay. We're, we're adding it in anyway. And what can you tell us about the the hair that was found in the hand of Joanne Walters? One of the victims uh, was 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 clutching a handful of hair when they found her body. This is where it gets totally bizarre, and um, for people to believe the story that we've just been told, it just makes absolutely no sense. So they come out just a few weeks ago and said that. DNA evidence um, has finally pointed to the hair being Joanne's own hair. Mm. Now, they were able to say it wasn't Ivan's hair in 94. Mm -hmm. So don't you think they would have tested it against her hair too in 94? Well, they're saying now that at the time they looked at it and thought it was a man's hair. So You can't say, oh, well, we're not going to test it against the victims. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it's like taking fingerprint evidence and saying, well, we're not going to check to see if, if these were the victim's fingerprints. We're going to assume it's not because they're large. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. So for them to come in now and say, oh, no, it's okay, it's not a second killer's hair, it's it's Joanne, so we can stop talking about it now, you know, it is very, that does not make sense to me. It is odd. So yeah. with all this talk of the, there being at least another uh, killer, 
I mean, who who is it? Who was it? Who do you who do you think? Oh, Michelle, do we go? There? Yeah, we have to go there because <laughs> he lives I'm, locally. So. Oh, right. Okay. I've even heard one of Ivan's sisters' names bandied about. So John Marsden, who who was um, a lawyer for the Malat family for many many years, and he's actually um, he well he was a local identity around Campbelltown. He's he's passed away but on his deathbed he claimed that um surely Ivan's sister who lived with him in in the house here at Eagleville mm. um was one of the killers as well now it was very left field mm. but I mean there's evidence to suggest that she wasn't very feminine I mean I don't think I am either <laughs> um but but she was quite a tough lady and but it's still I think for a case like this where we have victims being decapitated it, it does take the strength of a man to do that and um I've, I've seen video footage of other brothers and the family like Richard um he was actually asked on um, an outtake on Australian story who's the better shooter in, in the family and there's a micro expression that he shows that he wants to boast but he shuts himself down. It's, mm. it's actually quite telling um, that he won't want to say I'm I'm a great shooter and it sort of makes you then think, well, is he the shooter and Ivan the stabber? Mm. You know, it just it, it, there's just a micro-expression. I probably watched it oh, probably 200 times to, to just watch this hint of glee that he goes to say something and then backs off. I don't know. I found it chilling. Also, though, there is that idea that serial killers never stop killing until they're stopped. So do you think um, someone can stop because their brother was arrested for the crime and they got away with it so they'll stop? Does that I make mean, sense? They say, they say killers will never stop, but, I mean, we can look at the Golden State Killer. You get to a point that you're too old. That's true, yeah. You, you, you can't keep going. You would love to keep going, but, um, you know, part, especially those that are sexual serial killers, parts of them don't work. Yeah, right. You know, and they, they need drugs to do it and, you know, it's just too, too much of a hassle. It gets to a point it's, it, it can almost be like a full-time job horrifically for some of these that that um, you get to a point that, you know, cl- climbing into windows or, or trying to fight a, a young victim, they're, they're, they're going to overpower you and you're going to get caught. So you have to live on, on your fantasies. But we do actually catch the killers before they get to that point i mean we, we can look at like john wayne glover who was um in his 50s was when he, he was killing but that's why he chose elderly women at lunchtime yeah absolutely the granny killer from sydney yeah. right yeah. yeah so that um, makes sense yeah sorry i don't talk about these names i forget that not no. everyone knows them all it's just it's just my brain i'm sorry that's all right um but but yeah you you get to a point that you know um the, the backpacker case, these are teenagers and, 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 and young 20-year-olds that if you're in your 40s like Ivan was, there's only so long that, that you will have the strength to fight them. So if there's a second killer out there and um, likely a, around the same age brother, well, then they're in their 60s and 70s now. You, you wouldn't still be attacking. Um, but there's there can also be issues with um, some mental health issues that sort of makes you decline. Mm. A drug use and things like that, that um, sometimes that the stress of being close to being caught um, can actually shut them down. 
So you're still writing to Ivan? Yes, I am. Yes, I actually have a letter in my handbag now I need to respond to. Okay. So what's the latest? I mean, we know that over the years he's um, been self-harming in jail and still professes his innocence. And uh, mm-hmm. So what's the latest? I believe, I, I believe if he did a, um, a lie detector test, he, he would pass. He's mm. completely and utterly convinced whether he's guilty or not. He would pass it because um, he knows in his heart that he didn't do it. But the, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely does because that's what you yeah. need to pass a lie detector is you need to believe it. Mm-hmm. It's so weird that um, we know of his history of self-harming and yet his letters have staples in them. That is weird. So, so I don't know who staples them because he writes the envelopes himself. So I don't know if he leaves them open and they and they staple him them for him, but it seems odd that they would do that. I've never asked actually. Yeah. But um, they, they used to be stuck together but now they're stapled. So... It's quite odd. But um, he is threatening more self-harm because he's waiting for another appeal that is slow on the uptake. Mm. So um, so he's getting a bit frustrated and we were actually talking about, you know, he goes, I've, I've, I've got nine fingers so I've got plenty more to fight with. Oh, he must so, be, is he in his 60s now or 70s even? 70s. So I think he's 71, 72. Wow. So he's, he's quite old. He doesn't think he'll get out, but he's going to keep fighting anyway. Wow. And you're going to keep writing? Yeah, I write to, um, I write to about 150 killers currently. So there's a lot coming and going. So there's some exciting cases that are happening and some appeals that I'm, I'm aware of and um, some crazy stuff like Cookie Monster pictures I get sent often, which really freaks me out. But who's sending you Cookie Monster pictures? What's that about? Uh, Haddon Clark. He's a serial killer in the US. He he had two victims, and, and one was a young child, which makes it even more creepy. Oh my god! Um, I used to love Cookie Monster. Mm. He was my favourite Sesame Street character. Me too. Um, yeah, but not anymore. Thank you so much for downloading. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. I'm so sorry I didn't get around to thanking our Patreon patrons in this episode. Uh, I'm very nervous is the truth. I'm heading off on a crazy trip for uh, a show, an SBS show called Go Back to Where You Came From. And uh, I'm absolutely packing it. (laughs) And uh, I'm leaving tomorrow uh, I don't know what, how to explain it. You know, it's obviously before you're listening to this, but I'm editing this the night before I go and I'm heading off to a place. I don't think I can tell you where the place is right now or can I, I don't know, but I'm very afraid and I'm leaving my family and I don't want to. And there's part of me that's tempted to actually pack up my family right now and flee to a caravan park at the beach and just hide out um, so they can't make me go. Oh, God, rambling, drinking wine while I'm editing, trying to avoid thinking about it. So that is why I haven't gotten around to doing a proper Patreon shout-out, but I can tell you that it's patreon.com forward slash pod A-U-S-T, true crime pod is how you can become a supporter of our true crime podcast and I know that I've put extra stuff on there because I did that earlier to make sure that I had done it um, before I started drinking wine 
and editing this because I'm so afraid of the trip that I'm taking. But you can see it on SBS. I think it's on the 2nd, 3rd and 4th of October. And you can definitely see it on SBS. Um, I don't know, whatever their live service is that you can see online. Um, should have done this before I started drinking. But thank you to everybody for everything. And... Uh, yeah, it's just good luck to everyone. I had to do this training session yesterday with our security guy where he had to tell me what to do if I was kidnapped. And that has sort of freaked me out, to be honest. And he's a great person and I really enjoyed his company, but that has really freaked me out. So, um, yeah, today I'm struggling because tonight is tonight the night that I'm editing the Malat podcast to put it online is the night before I fly out to the place I probably can't mention because I've probably signed a contract to say that I wouldn't tell you before a certain date. I can't, I'm so lost. I can't remember. But anyway, thank you. Good luck to everyone, mostly me, because I'm going to a war zone. <laughs> but this podcast is my joy my pride and joy so thank you to you for listening thank you to emily for doing it with me thank you to our patrons for supporting us and uh see you soon hopefully fingers crossed guys uh please watch this show on sbs i don't can't remember what i can tell you about it anyway bye A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.